Greetings, friendlies. Welcome to Dharma PhD, conversations about the science, philosophy, and culture of mindfulness and secular Buddhism. I'm your host, Shannon M. Whitaker. In today's episode, my co-host Jeff Street and I will be talking about John Peacock's talk, Buddhism Before the Theravada, Part 2. We highlight how Peacock addresses ethics, and we talk about ethics in pop mindfulness culture and ethics in secular Buddhism. We go through some definitions. We talk about how ethics led to my disenchantment with pop mindfulness culture. And we talk about how different translations of the precepts can affect how one approaches practice and daily life. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Jeff. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. What kind of podcast adventure are we going to have today? (laughs) I thought we might begin with some response to listener comments. Mm-hmm. I've received some loving and generous response That's from fantastic. our listeners okay. and from my co-host. Mm-hmm. One of the points being that the introduction could use a little workshopping. Okay. And I thought, since we have someone here who has some ideas about how that might go. I feel like I would like something that gives me a little more, I'll say this, the sort of introduction that you created mm-hmm. does give an insight into who you are. Okay. Because you sat down and you said, what are the things we will cover? And you made a list and then you refined the list. I thought it might be interesting to have an introduction that tells us a little bit about, it tells us a little bit about the idea of where Dharma PhD comes from and, and where it's going. A story sort of introduction. Something like, so the schools wouldn't teach it. So I'm a <laughs> rebel student. Making my own Dharma, which is brew over here. Something like that, that that describes your journey a little bit. Okay. Okay. Is this an idea that you're open to? I'm open to it. As, as usual. <laughs> I haven't prepared anything for this. Uh, I've, I've arrived with an open mind and yeah. open heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe we'll workshop it behind the scenes and Fine. see if we have any fantastic ideas for next time. Okay. And listeners, if you have. Write in. If you have ideas, write in. What's the next segment we're going to talk about? Today, we're going to talk about the second in a series of six talks given by John Peacock. The title of the series is Buddhism Before the Theravada. We talked a little about what that means in the last episode. I'd like to take a moment here and do what I failed to do in the last episode, which is encourage our listeners to actually go and listen to the talk. Ah, Okay, Because the original is available. Yeah. Peacock's talk is available. There's a link in the show notes. I don't think of this podcast as cliff notes. We're not summarizing what the talk said, and we're not going to take every point of the talk and dissect it because that would take seven episodes. The idea I have is something more like putting this talk in context, talking about what's important to me and what, I feel like I used this word a lot in the last episode, what really resonated with me. Sure. Talking about how these talks lend themselves to the project of human flourishing. Great. Is this one of those talks that you've transcribed? Yes. yes. Okay, so they could read it. Don't. Yes, thank you. The transcription is on the website. It's one of those multimodal modal learning. If you receive the information two ways, then you learn it three times as much. Yeah, so I would like to encourage our listeners to go and have a listen. You can pause this talk right now, and we will wait right here. Do, 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 do. Okay, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) 
feel free, listeners, to chop out that bit of singing and make it your ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we'll put that on the website in the show notes, but if you write in, it, it can happen. Are you ready to jump into the actual material? Yeah, okay. yeah, let's go ahead. So we're talking about this Dharma talk given by John Peacock, Buddhism Before the Theravada, part two. In this particular talk, he begins with a Q&A. I said it wasn't cliff notes, but a quick cliff notes. He begins with a Q&A and he reiterates a few of the points that we discussed last time. The two main points being first, that Gotomo was not trying to start a religion, mm-hmm. that he was interested in exploring and developing what I'm calling a pragmatic philosophy of human flourishing. Okay. And second, Gotama was a social critic, that he was intensively engaged with his culture, and that we should do the same. Okay. Then he talks, this is a little teaser, he talks about the concept of considering rebirth. We were talking last time, I think, about rebirth. We addressed it briefly. It sounded like it was one of those things that was part of the culture. The yeah. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how in secular Buddhism, people consider this rebirth concept as a moment-to-moment experience instead of life-to-life. I'm not sure what the difference between those two is. I think this might be its own episode. Okay. This idea of rebirth as a moment-to-moment experience versus rebirth as a life-to-life, lifetime-to-lifetime experience. Mm -hmm. And then he talks quite a bit, last time again, we talked about problems with the Pali to English dictionary mm-hmm. and how the, the dictionary itself is where a lot of the trouble is coming in with translations. Okay. He actually goes through and lists a bunch of faulty translations. Peacock does. Peacock does, yeah, okay. in the talk. So go have a listen if you haven't yet. It's amazing. You will not be disappointed. But the part that I want to highlight today in our talk is Peacock introduces the concept of ethics. And he claims that Gotama's teaching is grounded in ethics. I think this falls under the point, Gotama was not trying to create a religion, but he was trying to create a philosophy of flourishing. But now I want to drill down a little bit more into this claim about Gotama's teachings being based on ethics. Peacock says that the teachings are grounded in ethics, so they come from an ethical base. Okay. This word ethics is a little squirrely, and Mm -hmm. so I thought we might start with some definitions. Okay, let's jump right in. I went to Wikipedia, because Mm -hmm. that's where people get their knowledge nowadays. The source of all truth and uh, uh, (laughs) collective um, agreement. And I brought three definitions to discuss. I thought I'd list them, and then we go through them one at a time. Mm -hmm. The first definition from Wikipedia that I'm offering is that ethics is the exploration of right and wrong behavior. The second is pointing out etymologically, the word ethics comes from an ancient Greek word that meant relating to one's character. Okay. So the the first first one one was what you do, your actions. Yeah. And then the the second one has to do with one's character and the nature of a person. Yeah. The third one is ethics as a set of concepts and principles that guide us in determining what behavior helps and what behavior harms sentient creatures. Sentient creatures is, is really broad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Shall we dive in? Here we go. Okay. So the first definition, ethics is the exploration of right and wrong behavior. And I'm curious, because I've already read this, I'm curious, how does that land for you? It lands as 
the word exploration is surprising because I think of ethics as a system of you would do something. I'm not sure what the verb is. You would do something Mm -hmm. and then you would arrive at an ethics, Mm -hmm. a, a system of ethics, which would advise you as to what you ought to do. Okay. Or what the nature of a person might, or some set of like rules or principles. You would arrive there and that would be the ethics of John Peacock would be would be a, a list. Right. This definition makes it sound like ethics is an active thing. We're investigating, we're learning, we're revising. And that seems appropriate because the, the Greeks, they did some ethical exploration. But today we have new situations. Things have changed. And so it's good that this definition points out that we might update our understanding. It's interesting that you're highlighting that point because they didn't use the word exploration in Wikipedia. I mm. added that word. You're very smart. <laughs> so it's a good it's, thing that you have a podcast so <laughs> people can hear this kind of stuff. I hadn't realized that would be the thing that would be the most important was the fact that it's an exploration versus a given. Is that right? That in the one hand, ethics as a given, a system that's already in place that we use as a reference. And the other point, it's an exploration. It's something that we're actively doing. Is that what I heard you say? We're updating the system. Right. In the one case, it's maybe uh, yeah, the Ten Commandments are not a system of ethics, but it's kind of some rules, right? So you have some commandments, thou shalt not, thou, you know, all this. Yeah, yeah. And and in the other case, you might say, we've figured out some new ways to misbehave. We might need a few more commandments. <laughs> 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 yeah, one's a fixed and one's a living system. Yeah. And another interesting point about this first definition is that it focuses on behavior. Yeah. Whereas the second focuses on properties of a person. Yeah. Yeah. For me, there were two parts that seemed, I guess three, because I changed the word to exploration, but I just did that and didn't. (laughs) You just improved it a little bit. I just improved it a little bit. But you had said behavior, the fact that it's about behavior Mm -hmm. and not about intention in that first definition. I Mm -hmm. thought that was interesting because there are these different ethical frameworks and some of them are based on behavior and some of them are based on intention. The The other part that I thought was interesting about this definition is that it uses the words right and wrong, which has a particular connotation. Sure. Yeah. I thought it might be interesting to say, and now we're starting to get into ground that I'm a little bit, is a little more slippery for me because I'm still in the process of learning poly. Okay. But from what I know so far, my understanding is that Gotama doesn't use the terms right and wrong. Okay, that's interesting. And the reason I think that is, is because right and wrong implies this metaphysical right and wrongness. It implies that there is a being or a standard of rightness and wrongness against which everything else is being compared. Yeah, it does. There's kind of a, a ledger yeah. or some a set of criteria. Yeah, last time we talked about one of the pillars, the Four Noble Truths, and we mm-hmm. talked about how there are scholars who believe that may not be a skillful translation. Okay. Another one of the pillars is called the Eightfold Path. Right. And the Eightfold, you know about this? Well, you've mentioned it. I've, okay. I've heard it probably from you, let's be honest. <laughs> Maybe out in the okay. world. I think that one way to explain it might be that it's a sort of delineation of the domains of human experience that one cultivates if one wants to live a life of human flourishing, if one wants to follow the teachings of Gotama. It includes things like speech, like how you how you speak, action, what kinds of actions you take, livelihood, how you make a living. Okay, so these are like areas of life. Yeah, areas, domains of life. Okay. It also includes more subjective concepts like views and opinions, mm. what your views are, what your opinions are, and intention. Okay. okay. 
And this is within this thing of the Eightfold Path. path. The popular way to translate these aspects of the Eightfold Path are to say right before each of the domains. So right speech. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Mm. And then it gets really sketchy, right? Because it becomes right view and right intention. Okay. Does Peacock uh, comment on this particular translation? Not in this particular talk of the series. Okay. I'm not sure if he does later, but other Bodhi College teachers, Kenshino, for example, Stephen Batchelor, they definitely do. Hmm. In one of Stephen Batchelor's books, I believe it was after Buddhism, he says that the word Samma, which is usually translated as right, technically the word means complete. So mm-hmm. you would say like complete, a, a, lit- a literal translation would a be. literal translation would be complete. So okay. he says, imagine the difference between right view. I have right view, and I have complete view. Mm, yeah, big difference. Big difference, right? And it's really easy to say I have the right view. It's a lot harder for the most deluded moments to say I have the complete view. I understand all the things, all the aspects of this experience. I understand everyone's position and where they're coming from. That's yeah, they're a significantly lot. different. Yeah, it's a lot harder to claim. Other teachers use the word appropriate, and I've heard that Peacock uses appropriate, but not in this talk. So even that, right speech versus appropriate speech. Appropriate maybe even goes a step beyond complete, because appropriate implies that I've considered them all. Right. Yeah. And and this is the one. I guess the, the most generous interpretation of right also implies the same thing. Yeah. But in practice. Yeah, in um, practice not. Especially in a divisive political environment that we have today, m- many people strongly say that I have the right view here. Yeah. And crucially, you have the wrong view. Mm-hmm. Right? That sort of... Right implies the contrasting one. Other views. Yeah, anybody else's view. Because I have the right one, any other view is wrong. Whereas yeah. we can both have appropriate speech that is different. Sure, our contexts are different. Exactly. And... With Gotama's teaching, it brings in so much more of this nuance and it removes this metaphysical, there is one kind of right. It's about what is appropriate in this moment, as you said, given context, given... Given the the history of a certain situation, perhaps? Yeah. We've all had the experience of knowing that the thing that you want to say is right and knowing that now is not the right time to Uh, say it. This is a good example. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because in that case, the appropriate speech is no speech. Probably no speech. (laughs) Probably I'm going to go to the bathroom. Some later speech. (laughs) It's my sense that in the West, we have this idea of rightness, and we really want to translate this as rightness because we have this metaphysical understanding that we're answering to this omnipotent God. The Judeo-Christian tradition. The Judeo-Christian tradition. And then in our philosophical history, we have... For instance, Kant, Kantian ethics, I don't know how much you know about that, but it's very much based on things are right or wrong based on a set of rules. Okay. Does Kant advance a set of rules? And yeah. are they Kant's ethics? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've adopted this thing, the yes. idea that there are some rules, you measure a thing against those rules, and it comes down either as a right thing or a wrong thing yes. or action or, or whatever it is. And the those rules are up for debate. Yes. Well, exactly. some people don't think so. Sure. But culturally, this the structure we've adopted, Yes, though we may differ on the rules themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Mm-hmm. And this speaks to the first definition. Yes. Of, of yeah. That. We're still talking about the first definition. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
So moving on to the second quote unquote definition was this etymological point that ethics, the word ethics comes from the ancient Greek word ethikos, which means relating to one's character. Which seems like a, a, a fairly vague definition. Sure. Yeah. Like how does one... Well, it's not a definition. It's just more of a point. The difference between right and wrong behavior mm-hmm. versus relating to character. Is that different? Is it the same? I'm curious, again, how it lands for you. Well, the, the things you can do with that definition are a little different. Like it doesn't suggest right or wrongness. Mm. It doesn't suggest interaction. It's more having to do, what is it, a person's character? Yeah, the word itself comes from a word that means relating to one's character. Because how do we know what character is, right? Is it how someone behaves? Is it how someone behaves, or is it something in their nature? The Greeks may have believed that a character might have been different from the influences that various gods might have on a person, so a person's tendency towards optimism or pessimism might not be having to do with their character, but rather influenced by an external force, a god or or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the Greeks thought about character. (laughs) That's a really Uh, good point. Yeah, (laughs) that's a really good point that, you know, we're kind of throwing these concepts around without maybe, again, having the complete complete understanding. Sure, yeah. So I guess I I don't really know what to do with the second one, Okay, I would say. What do you think about it? I thought that I kind of wanted to talk about what is character made up of? Is it just behavior or is it also intention? I'll jump into this story that that I thought was illuminating. There's a story from, again, the Polycanon, this series of texts that, that I'm particularly interested in and that mm-hmm. Peacock is talking about, mm-hmm. where Gotama is talking with a person named King Pesenidae. Okay. And he and King Pesenidae are like sitting around one day and a bunch of wise men approach. It seems like they were a big part of the cast. Uh, in the this wise story. men? Yeah, we're hanging around and then guess what? A bunch of wise men come in. So King Pesenidae pays the wise men homage. And then the king says to Gotama, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, these men are saints. Isn't Mm -hmm. it true that these men are saints? And Gotama says, again, I'm paraphrasing, it is difficult to know if someone is a saint. It is only by living with someone for a long time that their virtue can be known. It is only by dealing with them for a long time that their honesty can be known. And it is only after long adversity that a person's fortitude can be known. It is only after long discussion with someone that their wisdom can be known. That's true. How did they arrive? Hello, we are wise men. Yeah, well, they showed up looking like, you know, dressed like mendicants. You'll notice our beards are long Beards, long. They actually talk about long fingernails, long Mm -hmm. hair, dirty Mm -hmm. arm. I think they said long hair under their armpits. (laughs) That's a little too specific. (laughs) Then... King Pisenity says to Gotama, he says, well said, those men are actually my spies. They disguise themselves as saints and wander the country collecting information. They are not saints. In fact, near the opposite, some might say. (laughs) The third definition was ethics as a set of concepts and principles that guide us in determining what behavior helps and what behavior harms sentient beings. How does this one land for you? The first bit uh, is the Kantian structure that we were talking about a little while ago. We have a set of rules or principles that we measure things against. Mm-hmm. And then the last bit about sentient beings is the thing we're trying to optimize for. Yeah. So we, we propose an action. We measure it against our criteria. And the metric we're interested in is outcome or, or effect on 
sentient beings. Yeah. And we try yeah. to choose the maximal good or the minimum harm. Or yeah. There are different ways of putting that, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They're and they're different. Maximum good versus minimal harm are two. The Hippocratic Oath is not maximum good. It's minimal harm. Yeah. So that one seems familiar in, in that way. The idea of optimizing for all sentient beings, that seems consistent with the Buddhism that I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing I've encountered in other ethics I've studied in the past. It's bad with human beings. We're not worried yeah, about other. Totally. And it gets more complicated, right? You bring in more things you're optimizing for. Yes. And are they weighted equally? Various things have various degrees of uh, things like self-awareness and and, and there are different levels of of consciousness, I think is the right word. Maybe not. Sure. Mm -hmm. People have different theories about what level of self-awareness do ants have versus like a dog or a cat versus a cow versus a, there's some. Versus a human. Sure. Sure. Right up there at the top. Yeah, people will do some systems of thinking, rank yeah. these things. Some systems, I would imagine, would characterize all sentience as uh, fairly equivalent. Yeah. And yeah, so then it would be much easier because all sentient beings are equivalent and that's that. Yeah. Yeah, and I also like how this ties in a little bit with what we said earlier about complete view, complete, you know, when we talk about should we make it a hierarchy or not, Yeah. to an ant, right? <laughs> like that ant probably doesn't want to get stepped on, probably doesn't want to get burned with a magnifying lens, whatever it is that people do to ants. I don't know if that's a thing that people actually do or if it's just on cartoons. I've seen it in cartoon strips. Yeah, yeah. okay. So it must be true. I've never done it myself. I tried to light paper on fire. I thought a thing being on fire would be cooler yes. than like just an ant stopping walking. Yeah. Unsuccessfully with the paper also. Aw. That's because you lived in Seattle and it was never sunny there. Yeah, it was, it was just pretty, you were... it's pretty wet paper. Yeah. Mm. I really like this definition you didn't ask, but this is a podcast. I re- <laughs> you, you, uh, yeah, you consider it implied. Mm-hmm. I really like this definition or I'm really interested in it because one, it's about behavior mm-hmm. and two, in, in contrast to intention right. or thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably a thing for another episode entirely behavior, behaviorism versus different psychological things. What were you going to say? On, on the differentiation between behavior and thought, it might also be interesting to differentiate between uh, behavior and, and or, or intention and outcome. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah, yes. you might have an incomplete understanding of a situation yeah. and, and perform some action with the intention and, and maybe all the information you have mm-hmm. will lead you to a certain conclusion, but it's not a complete understanding. Yes. Yeah. You have just served it up so well for me because the thing I wanted to talk about here is again, the way that Gotama addresses how to determine whether or not one should take an action or not. Okay. My sense of being brought up in a Western tradition, and I'm interested to know if it's different for you because we had different religious upbringings. And if it's interesting to know, mine was uh, loosely Protestant and, but mostly spiritual, but not even a ton spiritual and not much mm-hmm. religion. Mm-hmm. And mine was really Catholic down the line. Yeah. So if that's interesting for Catholic, people. Catholic family and schools through college. Yeah. My sense I have of my Western upbringing was in order to determine whether or not an action is appropriate, let's say, or right or wrong, you think about it and you say, mm-hmm. is this action right you, or wrong? You, you carefully consider it. You, and then you compare it against the rules. You evaluate right, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you do it or not. Mm-hmm. And then you are right or wrong. I want to contrast that specifically with how Gotama teaches his son how to consider action. Okay. So there's a sutta where he's talking to his son, Rahula. 
And instead of just saying, think about it, ponder deeply beforehand, he says that you should reflect beforehand, Mm -hmm. during, and after Hmm. taking an action. Mm -hmm. And that felt so much more complete to me. It felt like such a better way to train the mind. So he says, sorry, I'm just pulling it up right now. Yeah. So he tells his son, you should reflect on your action before doing it, while doing it, and after doing it. Before taking an action, you ask yourself, will it lead to affliction for myself or others? Is it skillful or unskillful? Will it lead to pleasant or painful results? And if upon reflection, you decide that the action will lead to affliction that is unskillful, that it will have painful results, then it is unfit for you to do. There's a couple different translations of all these different words, but you get the idea. Okay. And then if it will not lead to affliction, if the action is skillful, if it will lead to pleasant results, then it is fit for you to do. So far, so good. That marries up with it's Kantian. Yeah, or, my Western um, understanding. That, am I pushing Kantian too much by um, characterizing that way? Is there a better way to say it? Yeah, I think I... So if my philosophy professors are listening, I don't have enough recollection of Kantian to say yes or no. I'm talking about my own from my own experience. Like okay. my experience of being brought up as a Westerner yep. was to... Think about it first and then hope for the best. Sure. And then beg for forgiveness later. Make your best judgment. Right. right. As you can with the information, with the time. With yeah. The, but the judgment is almost always before. Sure. I guess the main point I want is to contrast that idea of think about it beforehand with think about it beforehand, during, and after. Because the second thing he says to Rahula is you should reflect while taking the action. This action that I'm in the middle of doing, is it leading to affliction for myself or others? Is it skillful or unskillful? Will it lead to pleasant or painful results? And if you decide affliction, unskillful, painful. Same same criteria. Yeah, you should stop doing it. Mm -hmm. And then he goes one step further and he says, you should reflect after having taken an action. Did the action lead to affliction? Was it unskillful? Did it have painful results? And if you decide that it was harmful, you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open, and having done so, exercise restraint in the future. Mm-hmm. If you've done something wrong, fix it yeah. and learn from it. Yeah. Tell everybody or tell the people who are appropriate and then exercise restraint in the future, which feels much more holistic to me than think about it beforehand, then do it and then feel guilty about it or ask for forgiveness or something. Because this isn't about like asking for forgiveness. It's saying, hey, I made a mistake and here's what the mistake was. And that way people can learn from it. Because he, he does not say ask for forgiveness. Yeah. There's a teacher in particular, Jill Fransdahl, who says that forgiveness is not a part of Buddhism. That, mm-hmm. that there isn't forgiveness in the way that we have forgiveness in the Christian tradition. Well, yeah, there's a big there's a big tradition of uh, forgiveness. <laughs> and, forgiveness is a pretty big part of. <laughs> yeah, feel, feeling bad about things, asking for, for forgiveness for those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, it's not part of... Um, a Buddhism. That's an interesting point as well. Yeah, we may, maybe we should do an episode on that. It's a um, long list of future episodes we're building so here. so long. <laughs> Something that I think is really important about this sort of three-fold approach to behavior and determining rightness or wrongness or appropriateness or inappropriateness is that what I'm learning about habit formation and addiction from a neurological perspective, this three-fold approach absolutely coincides with work that's coming out of neuroscientific studies. Particularly um, Dr. Judson Brewer. Mm -hmm. He's working with habits and addictions and particularly with mindfulness-based habit change. And he talks about how important it is to pay attention 
before, during, and after taking an action. And that is how we train our brains. Because if we only pay attention before doing the action, we can't always teach our brains to break a habit if we don't pay attention to the results of the action. Do we give some, by paying attention to the results, do we give some feedback? Yes, exactly. A thing happened, it was good. A thing happened, it was uh, be desirable to do again or, or right. not desirable to do again. Yeah. So one more thing I wanted to say about this Wikipedia and ethics definitional game that we're playing. The article made a point that was really helpful for me, which is that many people confuse ethics with behavior that is in accordance with social conventions, religious beliefs, or the law. Mm. Yeah. So people say, oh, ethics is about doing what's legal, Mm. but ethics as it is defined on Wikipedia. <laughs> mm-hmm, the source of all truth and righteousness in our modern civilization. Mm-hmm. Is a separate concept from what is legal. What so is, specifically, certain behaviors are prohibited by law or prohibited by yes. the commandments. Yes. And these are not ethical systems. These are not systems of ethics. Is that what they, you're saying? They might, they might be, but, mm. but they're not necessarily. It, mm. it could be. Someone could have a law that is you don't get to kill other people in your neighborhood or other places, but that's not what our law says. Mm -hmm. Our law says we get to kill people in other places. Oh, there might be a war for example. And that's a time when you can, right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe somebody gave a forged $20 bill and it becomes legal to kill that person. So what is the difference between uh, a a law and a system of ethics? I don't don't think I understand that. Yeah. Is ethics how you decide whether or not a thing should be a law? I think for many people, yes, but not always. Some people think that something should be a law because it profits them personally. Mm -hmm. Okay. Law can be anything. Law can be based on a religion. It can be based on social norms. It can be based on a dictator's whim. Mm -hmm. And then it is a law. Okay. But ethics... So you could have, for example, an unethical law. Absolutely. Not only could you, but you... We've seen some. It exists. Yeah, it absolutely exists. Okay. So the idea, for example, that some people are prohibited from voting in various ways. Yes. Some of those ways might be ethical Mm -hmm. and some of those ways might not be ethical. Right. Slavery was legal. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's an argument that slavery is unethical. I think that understates the case. (laughs) Okay. So then we might be using one, one system of ethics to create our laws. And then maybe our ethics evolve a bit. Mm-hmm. And then we need to change our laws to catch up with it. Yeah. We, yeah. we, might, we might come to understand a greater definition of equality in various mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that would be incorporated into our ethical systems, and, and then we would make an effort to incorporate it into our legal system. Yeah. Okay. And the problem is that social norms and laws, if people think that those are ethically correct, like whatever the law says is ethical, then okay. no one tries to change it. Where you get Mm. conflict, especially in movements that we see that are civil disobedience, is that the people think this law is unethical and I will not be bound by it and I will do what is necessary to move in the direction of change. What's equally true that the desire for change can come from a variety of places. Sure. Just to be complete, certainly the idea that a law is unethical. But also the idea that if these uh, property boundaries were drawn a little bit differently, then I could make some more money. Yeah. The desire for all, all the same yes. things that, that bring laws into being, for, yes. for better or worse, all those same factors would drive the desire to change right. things. Mm-hmm. 
for me, the third definition that we used of ethics, let me scroll up to it, ethics as a set of concepts and principles that guide us in determining what behavior helps and harms sentient beings, that for me was the most powerful definition because it does address these legal issues where someone might say, well, let's create a law to change this boundary. How does that help and how does that harm? How should we evaluate this proposal? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So does that help clear up the question about legal versus... Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess the commandments are a little fuzzier. There seems to be some overlap there, right? They're they're a set of principles, Yeah. but also they're fairly specific and, and actionable. Absolutely. And for some cultures, they are the law. I'm not enough of a religious scholar generally to make that point. Well, uh, especially Orthodox communities, for example. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One point I wanted to make, you had asked the question about the difference between law and ethics and a paradigmatic case of this, these two things running into each other is, have you heard of the tradition of sati? No. So it's a tradition amongst certain Hindu sects in which a widow, when her husband dies, would throw herself onto the husband's funeral pyre. I've heard of this. Okay, I didn't know the alive. line was it. Yeah. So the trouble that you run into, right, is that this is a person saying, this is a choice I'm making. I'm doing this. But when you look at how much brainwashing would have had to happen over the course of a person's life to have them think, I'm going to commit suicide by burning myself on a dead human being's fire for many people that feels like a religious norm that is not ethical convincing Mm -hmm. someone that that is a good idea does not feel ethical genital modification of infants is another one where it's a religious and social norm sure but but it's not always clear that there is that that is helping there are systems of ethics that propose that these things should be left in a natural state. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So just to sum up, the definitions that we talked about for ethics were, one, that ethics could be ethics as an exploration of right and wrong behavior. Two, the fact that the word ethics comes from the ancient Greek word ethikos, which means relating to one's character. And three, my favorite, ethics as... <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, write in, write in to vote for your yeah, favorite as yeah. well. Of course, it's my favorite. It's the longest one. Ethics <laughs> <laughs> Ethics as an exploration of what behavior helps and harms sentient beings. Was there anything that you wanted to recap about that? I guess I should decide which one is my favorite. Oh, you don't have to. It's okay. It's, <laughs> it's good enough that I have right view. <laughs> now that you've told us what the right view is, then I will simply subscribe to it. I don't need to. No decisions are needed. Fantastic. Um, I see how this podcast is going to go. <laughs> It is the one that connects with me the most strongly and matches maybe most closely my internal idea of what ethics are. Maybe yeah. that's a way to say it. Yeah. With the expansion of applying to all sentient beings. Yeah. Whereas previously, if you had asked me just off the cuff, hey, what's ethics? I would have focused on, on humans. Yeah. I thought it might be interesting for you. I feel it's weird to talk about me, but my sense is that you enjoy hearing why these things are important to me. Yeah, I really do. I think that's fantastic. Okay, Let's so I thought it might be interesting to talk about why ethics in Gotama's teachings are so important to me. Why is this the thing in this particular talk that I really glommed onto? Because, you know, he does talk about faulty translations, which, you know, are 
near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So why ethics? It is because ethics is what led to my disenchantment with the modern pop mindfulness culture. Interesting. Yeah. How did it happen? Last time we talked a little about mindfulness with a capital M. I think you had said mindfulness trademark. Mm -hmm. Peacock says in this talk that ethics are, quote, falling short in Western Dharma circles, unquote. And I'm not so sure about Dharma circles, but I certainly feel that way about pop mindfulness culture. Okay. There are objections that come up about mindfulness. I don't know if you've heard of any of these, but there are a couple. The first one is that mindfulness can just make a better sniper. People say mindfulness is bad because mindfulness is just about you can make better snipers with it. It helps you to do whatever the thing is you're going to be doing. All we're doing is teaching people how to use their minds more effectively. Mm -hmm. And that efficacy can be pointed in any direction, Mm -hmm. even a harmful one. Mm -hmm. And this particular point, man, even just saying this, I can feel my belly getting tight. Mm. This point is really salient for me right now. I have a very dear friend whom you know, who is in the U S military and is in charge of deploying nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And this person once said to me, I don't know their position now, but they once said to me that they were weaponizing mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Just saying that. Does, does (laughs) thinking about science in the same way help you to, or does thinking about science as a parallel to mindfulness here, does it give you the same feeling? The idea that science can also be weaponized, for example, that's how nuclear weapons came about. Yeah, I don't. That's an interesting question. Yes. And maybe I don't know why. Right in this moment. No, right. Right in this moment saying science can be used to weaponize. Mm-hmm. It's such a truism that I am like, yes, of course it can. It's Any been a tool thing that we've been exposed to for quite some time. Yeah. yeah. The thing that was distressing for me with this particular interaction was that, in my opinion, it points to a systematic failure in the way that mindfulness is being deployed, Mm. the way that it's being taught in our culture. Mm -hmm. An example of this is that I've heard mindfulness teachers say they will not teach soldiers, Mm. they will not teach police forces, because they don't want to make them more effective killers. And again, this is my opinion, and some people won't like the thing I'm about to say, but in my opinion, that stance is worse than the case of our nuclear weapon soldier. Because in the latter case, it is the teacher who believes that the thing that they are teaching is insufficiently grounded in ethics, that they are teaching something that can be used in a harmful way. And in my opinion, that teacher should stop teaching everybody. If they don't feel that the thing they're teaching is for the good, whether it's policeman, soldier, candlestick maker, Don't cross a candlestick maker. (laughs) Don't cross a candlestick maker. (laughs) It was in that clue game for a reason. Candlesticks. Mm -hmm. Dangerous. Mm -hmm. But if I, as a teacher, don't think that what I'm bringing is skillful and wholesome, again, that's just my opinion. I should stop teaching it. I feel like this is a, I don't know if I agree with that stance because if we try to apply it to the, to a science teacher, Mm -hmm. for example, you can use science for all kinds of things. Yes. You can also, maybe here's the parallel. So with the teaching of science, you can also impart a wonder mm-hmm. about the world, a sense of beauty, a sense of exploration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe there's a parallel with mindfulness. Yeah. You and I were both trained in the sciences. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't remember there being any ethical teachings in my science upbringing, in, in my college years. I don't remember there being ethical training as a requirement. It was a whole, other, whole different class. Yeah, it was a whole different department. I did go to a university that required you to take a, a, a survey of courses. Okay. No matter the discipline you took, you were required to take some science. Mm-hmm. You were required to take some philosophy, some ethics. Okay. Yeah, I never took an ethics class that I know of. I'd have to go, again, it's been a while, so mm-hmm. I'd have to go and check my... <laughs> I'm just bringing this up because it, it may be a way that the university deals with this right. question. Yeah, They may absolutely. say, this is an important thing for us to do, to give yeah. our students this perspective. And while we're dissecting frogs, we should focus on that. Yeah. But in a separate class, we can address these other questions. Yeah. Some people might say, let's look at what did Gotama do? And Gotama taught people who were kings and warriors who put people to death and engaged in war Mm -hmm. because he believed that the thing that he was teaching led people to be better human beings, led people to lives of flourishing. Which Um, might include not engaging in war. Yeah. There's one sutta where he's talking to a king who's just killed his own father in order to become the king. And Gotama has to be very careful Politics. Oh, I can't remember if Peacock talks about it in this talk or another one in these series, but he talks about how Gotama talks to this guy and tries to very gently bring him around to an understanding of what he has done. But he never says, I'm not going to teach a soldier. He believes that it is leading to, I guess that word I just said, believe might be the thing, right? Like maybe I'm delusional, maybe, (laughs) but I would have no problem teaching policemen or soldiers. They may not be interested in what I'm teaching. Like I may start and they may say, I'm not interested in this. This is too much. There's too much ethics here. But because the thing that that you would be teaching, you're saying includes some ethics. Yes. Okay. Talking about this disconnect between pop mindfulness culture, you and I spoke, I think before we started this podcast, you had asked me, is the thing that you want to do is to become a mindfulness teacher or something. Mm -hmm. Because I was already Mindfulness teaching. Trademark. Yeah. Because mm. I was already teaching MBSR. Yeah. And I said, no. I said, maybe a Dharma teacher, but not a mindfulness teacher. And you had asked me what the difference was. And at the time, I didn't have a good answer. But this ethical aspect, I think, right now, in this moment, <laughs> on September 27th, that. <laughs> 3.15 in the afternoon. Put it in the afternoon. and send it yeah. to yourself and uh, get the postmark on there. Right. In this moment, that is the difference for me, is that the Dharma is grounded in ethics, whereas, in my opinion, pop mindfulness culture has taken some distance from ethics. And there are people who disagree with me on this, but then there are teachers who say, I won't teach policemen or soldiers, and I say, well, then that's because your teaching is insufficiently grounded in ethics. Again, Whereas if it did include some ethics, it might address the questions of what should one do. Right. The yeah. ethical questions. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the second argument that some people in our culture have against mindfulness, which is that mindfulness is about subduing people. Mm-hmm. It's about subjugating students. It's about subjugating people in corporate world and making them willing to tolerate bad conditions. Okay. And again, I think this is unfounded. Because, at least from the teachings of Gotama position, it, within mindfulness, it, it, there might be some argument there, but... You seem to be equating mindfulness and the teachings of Gotama. Is that what you're trying to do, or are you trying to contrast them because Gotama included ethics? 
Yes, the, the second thing. I'm saying that I think that pop mindfulness has yeah. distanced itself from ethics okay. because ethics are not popular. Yep. And it has made a choice to do that. Okay. Not everybody, but this argument that mindfulness can be used to subdue the masses is not possible if the thing that you're doing is teaching ethics. Mm. In my opinion, you're mm. not subduing anyone. Because within the idea of ethics is the idea of let's choose what we're going to do. Yeah. It's just not choice, the thing that one does if they're, if they're subdued. A great example of this is that I was at an education conference using mindfulness. And one of the educators said that her principal had come to her and said, I want my students to be obedient. I don't know if he used the word obedient or if he used the word behave, but he said, I want my students to be obedient. And she said, I'm not teaching them to be obedient. I'm trying to teach them how to be wise, how to use their own wisdom. And that, to me, is the difference. Uh, okay. In my opinion, the teachings of Gotama certainly, and mindfulness should not be, about obedience. It's about learning how to tap into one's own wisdom. And sometimes, one's own wisdom says, now is a time to be obedient. Now is a time to just do what the mm-hmm. nice person says, mm-hmm. and practice smiling, and practice letting go of your anger. But it's not about just being obedient. I know lots of people who were in the corporate world, took a mindfulness class, and then realized, I have to stop being in the corporate world. This is not good for me anymore. It's not about making people obedient. It's not about making people suck it up and feel better. It's about helping them to find their own wisdom and make wise decisions that lead, again, to human flourishing. (laughs) (laughs) That all comes back around. (laughs) It all comes back around. Does that make sense? How does that land? It feels like if you were to if you were to teach a mindfulness class, maybe you would teach what we could call mindfulness plus. <laughs> well, we gotta we gotta brand it a little bit. And so mindfulness is fine. I hear you saying. But it's missing a little it's missing a little special sauce. It's missing an aspect, which is ethics. That has been my experience. There will be people who will very much disagree with this because for them, that has not been their experience. So I'm offering my experience, which is I began to move away from mindfulness because pop mindfulness didn't have enough of an ethical ground. I didn't know how to say that at the time, but that is what was happening for me. Can I ask you a question to generalize this a little bit? Sure. We've been talking about the example of science. Uh Uh-huh. It, it feels like in our lives, we might desire to have an influence of ethics. What should I do? Okay. And it feels like there might be some areas of education in which ethics is a necessary component. Mm-hmm. And then other areas where it's not. So, for example, you can think about uh, mathematics. Okay. Maybe mathematics should include ethics. Maybe it shouldn't. The same for science, the same for... The Pythagoreans you know, would say for sure. Well... <laughs> They've been doing great work for a long time, Pythagoreans. <laughs> is this how you're thinking about it? Are you thinking there are a group of things that when they're taught, they should include ethics and, mm-hmm. and mindfulness is one of those. And there are some others. Or, or are, you, are you really focused on mindfulness here and, and have maybe not generalized this yet? I haven't generalized it. I mean, maybe you're not interested to. But I, I don't have any kids. So sure. that makes it easier because I don't have to try to decide how I want to help someone become a human being. Yeah. I'm just taking a moment to think about your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's recently been a case where a young person in, I believe in high school, 
said that they would not kill a frog to do a dissection. And I think it went to the state court or something. Oh, they were going to flunk them or something. And yes. So, okay. And this person said, no, it's against my morals. I won't kill a frog. And then the final decision, I don't know the semantics of how this came about, but the final decision was, we will get frogs who have died natural deaths and you will dissect that frog. And that became an acceptable <laughs> position. So now there's a bunch of school administrators at the swamp trying to find... Not looking for dead frogs. Oh man, in various states of decay. Ugh, gross. But it seems a clear application of an ethical principle. Yes. And I'm not sure where ethics doesn't fit. I'm not sure where it doesn't fit in our lives. I was taking a cognitive science class at Johns Hopkins University, and one of the papers that we were supposed to read was by someone who had been called out in the Me Too movement. Okay. And we spent 15 minutes of class, which is precious time, discussing whether or not we should even talk about this paper. Mm. Because here is a person who has made... Behaved in an unethical way. Right, behaved in an unethical way. Should we remove their name from the paper? Should we remove the paper from the journal? Should we not even address the paper? Is the knowledge worth what that person's victims went through? Does that answer your question? I, there's, yes, there are some very abstract concepts like mathematical theorems that maybe aren't ethical, but the people do, maybe that's it. The people doing the math are imbued with ethics. Mm. And so I don't see how you can separate the two. Maybe that's the thing I want to say. The point I was going to wrap around to was something like, in a math class, the math classes I've been in, we don't talk about ethics in an explicit way. Right. But my parents chose for me to go to Catholic school. Yes. And part of the reason they did that is, it may be, who knows? Maybe <laughs> we'll the probably find out after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason to go to, to do your learning at a certain school, to learn about drones from the Jeff Street School of Drones, it is the implied ethics that you get along with the rest of the curriculum. Yes. So even though your mathematics class may not have ethics explicitly, you may go to a school that requires you to take an ethics class at, at a separate hour of the day or a separate year of your education, a separate, a separate time period. Okay that's focused on ethics. And so that you will then have that knowledge and you can apply it to, to the rest of your life. And so a way that a, a way to apply that in the area of mindfulness might be to, to convey that knowledge in a context. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we don't modify the mindfulness trademark curriculum mm-hmm. to include a, a day on ethics. Maybe that's not the, the implementation. The implementation mm-hmm. may be uh, you'll be taking a mindfulness course and an ethics course, mm-hmm. or you'll be, taking it from a person who, or in a, as part of a school that offers these things in an implied way. Yeah. But there's also some value too, to hitting the nail on the head. There's, if you leave it up to the students to make a a very implied sort of connection, oh, I should be ethical all the time, not just in philosophy class. There's a value to being a little more explicit about ideas. Absolutely. And that is one of the, This argument about pop mindfulness not necessarily always being imbued with ethics, I raised this once to a MBSR teacher in a generation above mine who's been teaching longer than I have, and that person said, absolutely, it is 
implicit in everything we do, but I wanted it to be explicit. And I think that people that I am interested in teaching want it to be explicit. And so for me, the implicit nature wasn't enough in the same way that all the other students for the last several hundred years who have been dissecting frogs, killing and dissecting frogs, even if they had ethical concerns, may not have felt that it was an appropriate realm. They may have said, no, this is a separate realm. And my position now as a, you know, my position as a, as a as middle-aged an adult, human, adult person, yeah, as an adult person has become, there is not a realm in which ethics do not apply because I'm a human and humans are imbued with ethics. And so there's no way that I can bring myself to any subject matter, whether mathematics or science or anything else without bringing my ethical position with me. As Gotama teaches us, sometimes you have to tread carefully as yeah. you're as you're doing that, right? There, yes. there are different there are different ways to do it. There are different. There's a skillful way. There's an unskillful way. Yes, there's a right way. There's a wrong way. Sure, is not yeah. the thing we would say right. because we're a little more skillful than that. But there are appropriate ways, yeah, to do it. Effective, skillful uh, ways to do it. But the thing that you're insisting on is that should be an explicit part of one's perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I was so That proud. makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. Yeah, I was so proud of the professor that I was working with at Hopkins when they said, we're going to address this issue of Me Too, and I want to know what you as students in this class, how you want to handle it. I was so proud. Let's talk about it in an explicit way. Then. Yeah. Okay. Um, I thought that was, that was brilliant. You are a fan of doing things in an explicit way. We I always am. say between the two of us that subtlety is overrated. <laughs> and this seems like a perfect example of that. Yeah. So you'll be thrilled to know I'm ready to talk briefly again about Peacock. I don't believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> so we've talked several times now about this issue of translations, the Poly to English Dictionary, and that a lot of the problems are rooted in the Poly to English Dictionary itself. Okay. In this talk, as I mentioned earlier, he actually goes through a whole list of translations that he okay. considers faulty. Mm-hmm. I thought what we might do is maybe have an entire episode on faulty translations, make it like a series seven in the talks. Yeah. But there was one translational issue that I did think was important and, and was discussing ethics. Hmm. To, to briefly quote Peacock's, on this, the Dharma is rooted in ethics. It's rooted in that practice of everydayness, how you're acting every day. And I really like that because it points out again that it's not about some metaphysical rightness or wrongness. It's how we're acting in every moment of every day. Are we moving towards skillfulness? Are we moving towards helping ourselves and others? Or are we moving away? And I really like that. There's another... You ethics, won't be surprised. Ethics applied to everyday things, not yes, not not big questions of if you have three people lying on one railroad track and one person yeah. lying on another railroad track, do you flip the switch? It's how do I meet my former friend who has a different political position than I do, and how do I decide that I'm going to interact with that person, mm-hmm. and am I being skillful and am I helping that person or am I harming both of us in my interactions? Yeah. Okay. There's another pillar. It's a very well-supported pediment. <laughs> it's called the precepts. And the precepts no, are... No number? How many are we dealing with here? Five. Five, okay. Yeah. 
the precepts are ever so vaguely analogous mm -hmm. to the commandments of mm -hmm. the Judeo-Christian tradition. And actually, this vaguely analogous position is problematic in the translation. Remember last time we were talking about how the translations were originally made by colonial white male judges and lawyers. And so they, and they were translations of the suttas of the, yeah, of the poly, the poly to English the poly dictionary canon. Okay. was written by the, just wanted to clarify. We weren't talking about translations of the Bible. From oh the yeah. No, thank you for clarifying. And these people who were doing these translations, poly to English were Christian. So when they encountered these practices that one might call paths of liberation, they assumed they were religious and used religious type languages. And Peacock says, we can get led into a religiosity simply by the language that we use, which isn't present in the early texts. Okay. He was not trying to create a religion. Right. Gautama yeah. wasn't. So hitting that bell again. <laughs> but the translators were like, I know about religions. This is religious. Okay. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. So here we have these things. They're called the precepts. Again, there's, they're vaguely analogous to the commandments, except there's only five of them. And the first one is very frequently translated, I abstain from killing. So- Sounds familiar. Thou shalt not kill, for those who don't know the commandment I'm talking about. But right off the bat, even with this translation, there is a difference between the Judeo-Christian tradition and Gotama's teachings, because now I'm saying, I abstain. This is a choice that I am making. This is not something that is handed to me that I'm told thou shalt. Imposed upon you. Right. It's not imposed upon me. And I did make a note to remind myself to say, I am not a Christian scholar, and if thou shalt not kill is not a good translation of that commandment, I'm... Very open to hearing it. It's for sure a common one. It's a common one for sure. Yeah. So we start off with, I abstain from, I'm making a choice. But then Peacock says that rather than I abstain from killing, a more appropriate translation is, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. So it's long, so we'll unpack it a little. The fact that I undertake a rule of training, it's about training myself. It's not about right or wrong. So I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. And what I really like about this one, and Peacock highlights this, he says, it's more interesting than don't kill. It's saying, and this is a quote from Peacock, to refrain from harming living things means to actually engage in an inquiry into all my relationships of harm, including harm to oneself. Could we jump back to the first part for a minute? Sure. The rule of training part? Yeah. Is that kind of like saying, I would like to build a habit or a pattern of behavior mm -hmm. or acknowledging that I will make mistakes, Yes, acknowledging that I will fall short of this, whereas yes. the commandments are quite absolute. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. You have articulated how I felt about it very well. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad to have earned my, earned my keep table, for this your one. Your microphone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an interesting. I'm, I'm glad I got it. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And now to the, to the second part. Okay. So yeah, to refrain from harming living things. And again, what Peacock says is it means you're engaging in an inquiry into your relationships of harm, including harm to yourself. It's practical. It's an invitation to investigate your experience. How might I be doing harm and not even know it? Sure. In a broad way. Yeah. Beyond killing. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about all kinds of metaphors or, you know, stories to tell. And one is 
buying a, a beef hamburger at a fast food restaurant, mm-hmm. right? If the question one asks is, am I doing harm by this? The animal's already dead. I'm not killing anything. I'm just going to go get this thing and eat it. And as long as I'm not doing that too much, I'm not even harming myself. It's not bad for me. Is this okay or not? Is this right or wrong? But then if you look at a much bigger, if you look at the interconnectivity of all of the aspects of how that burger got where it is, you've got the cow that was killed. You've got the person whose job it is to slaughter lots of animals in order to feed this. Um, yeah, the different people that work in the meat processing in the meat plants, processing, for Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying all of this as a meat eater, so I'm not vegetarian, but these are the things that are part of this interconnected web. You have the environmental issues of the cattle industry and how it's affecting the environment. Then you have the possibility that you are shopping at a fast food restaurant where the people who are employed there are not being paid a living wage. There's this huge web of harm that's crystallized in this moment of interaction where I walk into the store and make a purchase. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not saying that people shouldn't eat hamburgers or fast food restaurants, but there's in, again, in the teachings of Gotama, there is an insistence that one reflect on the results of one's actions and that one refrain from causing harm. And frankly, I think that's enough right there. I don't know that we need any other precepts like (laughs) that one. If it's taken in that broad understanding, I mean, what else? Well, I'm curious now, what are the others? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't going to list all of them because if you're going to make the point that we don't need them, I think we should give them a hearing. All right. So I undertake the training rule to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the training rule to abstain from taking what is not given is the second one. And this is Mm -hmm. one that I did want to unpack a little. It's often, again, translated, I abstain from stealing. But again, the richness of I abstain from taking what is not given. Because stealing is an obvious thing, but we can take a person's attention. Pop-up ads, right? Rebuild your websites and remove pop-up ads. Should subscribe to this precept. (laughs) We can take someone's sense of self-worth. We can take away someone's sense of safety on a personal level, on a systemic national level, we can take in ways that do not involve stealing an object. Physical thing. Yeah, that aren't petty theft or whatever. We can take in ways, taking life, right? Killing an ant is is taking something that is not being freely offered. Mm -hmm. And again, it's so much more complex. I see your point here. This one does have a fair amount of overlap with with the first one, because you can argue if you take what is not given that diminishes the well-being of whomever was taken from. The third one is I undertake the training rule to abstain from sensual misconduct. This one's interesting because it's often translated. I abstain from sexual misconduct, Mm. but it's sensual misconduct. Mm. So imagine all the ways we abuse our senses, the ice cream example, or the, as Brewer calls them, the weapons of mass distraction in our pockets, our iPhones, Mm -hmm. too much YouTube, an unhealthy relationship to magazine subscriptions, whatever. Yeah, to a variety of things. Yeah, the ways that we misuse our senses. It's so much more complex. And again, falls under not harming. It can get wrapped up into that. I undertake the training rule to abstain from false speech. I'm not 100% sure about that translation. I need to look into that one. And then I undertake the training rule to abstain from liquors, wines, and other intoxicants, which are the basis for heedlessness. Mm. 
That really uh, takes it a next step in that one as compared to the previous, the other precepts. Yeah. And what I like about, again, I'm not completely sure about this translation. This is not Peacock's translation. This is Wikipedia's translation. So I'm a little skeptical. But one thing I really like about this precept is it says intoxicants. Mm -hmm. So how are the ways that we can become intoxicated again with things like social media? Sure. We can become intoxicated by our addictions to things we can develop these intoxicants that don't have to be drugs and alcohol. A lot of the translations are I abstain from drinking alcohol or taking drugs. But but this idea of heedlessness, what causes heedlessness? It's a good word. Yeah, intoxicants, heedlessness, these addictive patterns. I really like the precepts. How are they landing for you? What is what are you hearing as I'm saying all this? The idea of a training rule is is interesting. I, I like the idea because it coincides with the way that I think about my life right now. When I think about wanting to change the way that I am, I think about it in terms of patterns mm-hmm. right now. And uh, that, that seems to be what, what this is speaking to as well. Yeah. Something that's been really interesting for me personally is to watch over the past few years as I have become more and more of a Dharma practitioner, how I have submitted to the precepts which is interesting because I never submitted to the commandments. Hmm. I always felt strong aversion to the commandments. And I'm, I apologize if that's offensive to anyone, but that's, that was my experience because I was being told I had to behave in a particular way. And there was no, like you mentioned, if I'm undertaking a training rule and I make a mistake, then the thing I do, as we talked about earlier, is I confess it, I lay it open, and I promise to try not to do it again. Whereas thou shalt not... Christian scholars would argue back that that in the Christian tradition there are the commandments, and then they do have a whole process for dealing with making mistakes. You have a confession and so on. But it, I do feel the same way. Yeah. So Christians are often divided into Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians. And Old Testament is a fire and brimstone, and okay. New Testament is of the Lord uh, is my shepherd; I shall not want. It's very, it's very oh, okay. touchy feely. And I uh, thought that was like. Judaism versus Christianity, but Christians can also be divided in this way. The Old Testament is the Jewish Torah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they get a fair amount of fire and brimstone <laughs> there too. I, I had the same reaction that you did to the commandments and, and the whole process of confession and, and so on. Mm-hmm. I felt like there are nice people trying to do this thing, but it's there's really an element of fire and brimstone there. Yeah. That seeps in. And there was so much for me, there was so much hypocrisy. I was being told not to do these things by people, thou shalt not kill, by people who were promoting war. I was like, how is that? How are we handling that? And then the first three commandments, right? That put a sour taste in my mouth. This jealous God. Yeah. Anyway, what's been really touching for me, and again, it's probably just because I'm getting old, is how... (laughs) Well, it coincides with the things we've learned about how people build habits. How people... uh, It coincides with the neuroscience. If you want to build a pattern of behavior, there's a way to do that. Yeah. And it is through things like building a habit. If you make a mistake, going through the process that you described earlier to give yourself some negative feedback to change your behavior. Yeah. And for me, the the invitation in the precepts is so much more promoting flourishing. It's promoting agency. It's promoting exploration, right? It's not thou shalt not do a thing. It's I'm undertaking this training rule. Well, how do I do that? I don't know. I'll go try some stuff. And it speaks to the goals of that rule. The goal is to do this. Yeah. As I was coming up with this, 
this idea came up to me of how I have submitted to the precepts and, and thinking about how I was as a young person. I had a lot of anger and I caused a lot of harm. When I look back at the young person who had so much ill will and caused so much harm, I'm so sad for her. I wonder how she would have responded. I mean, maybe she was just a wild thing and, and she was not to be. <laughs> I see what these precepts are. They're rules that are they're disguised behind some, some right. words. <laughs> but I really, I'm really sad for the sadness and anger that I felt as a young person and the harm that I did because I felt like I was trapped in a box. And Anything I just, to get out of the box. I was just striking out to get out of the box. Yeah. So it, it's been really touching to sort of examine that as I was preparing this material. And yeah, mm. if you're listening and I've hurt you, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to get better now. <laughs> well, you're, you're building a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you use the word submitted. Yeah. When you're describing your relationship to the precepts, because one of the objections that you noted to the commandments was that they are imposed. Yeah. And submitted is a word that is oftentimes used to describe what happens when one, when a thing is imposed successfully. Yeah. Whereas you could also use a word like adopted. I've adopted the precepts, mm -hmm. which implies a more active or embraced, for example. Was there any pre-thought behind that word or is this the word that you came out? Maybe it came out because it was so starkly contrasted with the way that I responded to the commandments, which was no, and a pushing away and a digging in, and I'm not- A rejection. Is, yes, a complete rejection. And this is, okay, this, this feels right for me. And I, yeah, adoption, it does feel a little even softer than that, though. It does feel mm -hmm. like, like a submission. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question that you raise. I'm not sure. But that was the word that felt appropriate at the time. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious, how has this episode landed for you? It's been a doozy. Well, there are some new precepts. And so it's good to know that the Pantheon of Pillars is really, you know. <laughs> Proliferating. There you go. Thanks very much. Can we reach, can we reach for a high five? Excellent. <laughs> so it's been really good from that perspective. It's interesting, too, to talk about, I, I haven't personally revisited the definition of ethics in a while. It's interesting to do that as well. And I, I really like the way that the that the precepts are framed. The idea of building patterns, the idea of a training, it's a training what? A, training a rule program? of training. A rule of training. Mm -hmm. I really like that they've framed the precepts in terms of uh, a rule of training. Yeah, me too. And, yeah, I think that might be the, I don't know, the most impactful point for me. Okay. From this episode. Interesting. It's always so interesting to hear what lands for you. Awesome. Once again, thank you so much for being my amazing co-host. It's a pleasure, as always. <laughs> Throughout this episode, we've asked for feedback on a variety of subjects from the listeners. <laughs> and yeah, I think it'd be really fun. It, it's really great that people are writing in and that they're giving some feedback on the podcast. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So please, if you want to get in touch, we're available at hello at dharmaphd.com. There's a website, dharmaphd.com where I've been posting 
transcriptions of some of these talks and links to the talks and links to the episodes and other fun things like the word "cliticize." If you want to go look that up, you're welcome. I don't know what else we're supposed to say. Maybe thank our sponsors. We don't have any. No, we we're thankful that we don't have any. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's the thing to do. All right. Thanks so much for being here. I've really enjoyed this very much. It's been a good discussion. And thanks to our listeners. Yeah. May you be well. Sound check, sound check, sound check, sound check. I don't know how to talk. Why don't I know how to talk as soon as I sit down in front of the microphone? It's to be a podcaster without talking. Did you know graham crackers are designed, claimed by the inventor? Graham crackers are claimed to reduce one's sex drive. Huh. I hope it doesn't work. Do, 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 do.